There is a grandeur in this view of life. So wrote uh, Charles Darwin, actually, in the closing uh, section of his Origin of Species in 1859. Um, for the last few weeks, you know, we've been trying to, to, to see that actually, despite the scientific value of Darwin's work, which I personally believe is, is very great, the tendency of people to use the theory of evolution as, a, as an explanation of everything is actually anything but grand. Darwin himself actually was cautious about drawing um, grand, unscientific conclusions from his work. The grandness that he was speaking about was the the, the, the way in which it brought together a whole lot of biological observations. He was cautious about any assertions beyond that, but those who uh, followed him were far less cautious. They asserted that it proved that God does not exist, that material things are all there is, that we are only naked apes driven by our genes and a thousand other things. And those conclusions were never actually the inevitable conclusion of Darwin's research at all. They were always unfounded, parasitic claims asserted in blind faith by their advocates. They've believed uh, for the last 150 years that they just shout loud enough people will believe them. I hope that you've begun to see that those wildly extravagant claims actually just don't make sense of human life. They just don't. Whereas actually the first three chapters of the book of Genesis written thousands of years before Darwin do the Bible asserts, for instance, that the that material things are not all there is. Before an, an ounce of matter existed, God and his word existed. The mind of God is prior to material things. Indeed, mind or spirit is more fundamental to this universe than matter ever was. But new scientist read an article a month or so ago in which the author catalogued um, numerous investigations which have demonstrated the almost universal instinct amongst young and old that there is actually a spiritual realm behind the physical realm and indeed for most people a god in that unseen realm. And um, having catalogued all this, the article went on just to assume that, of course, this was a universal error. Never even attempted to prove it. Such is the blindness of those who are convinced that material things are all there is. Genesis 1 and 2, then, asserts there is a God behind this creation, a good God who created a good creation. There is such a thing 
as goodness and evil. The uh, uh, atheist materialists say, well, there, there really isn't when you ultimately think about it. Everything just is. No, says the Bible. No, say Christians. There is a good God. Everything is judged against the goodness of that God. He created his creation good and there is a real evil that has come into it. Genesis chapter 3. Remember Richard Dawkins denying that. There is at bottom, he said, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And Genesis 3 says, no. Evil is real. It is a monstrous intrusion into a good world. Everyone believes that. The Bible explains how it happened. But we've not yet gone deep enough. You know, perhaps the deepest theme underlying our culture in the last 150 years since uh, Darwin wrote his momentous book has been the long, slow, painful, sometimes spasmodic loss of hope. Right at the beginning, actually, there were prophets of this loss of hope. One of the most famous poems, for instance, of the latter part of the 19th century was written by uh, um, uh, a man called Matthew Arnold called uh, Dover Beach. It was written just a few years after The Origin of the Species was published in 1867. Ar Arnold began his poem by describing the, uh, the, the grating roar of the sea on the shingle on the beach at Dover at high tide. And then he wrote uh, this. The sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's shore lay like folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love, let us be true to one another. For the world which seems to lie before us is like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new. It hath neither joy nor love nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confusing alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. An extraordinarily prophetic little poem that was 
observer after observer in the last decade and longer, to be honest, has looked back over the 20th century and observed exactly what Matthew Arnold predicted, an erosion of joy and love and peace in our culture alongside confused alarms and the clash of ignorant armies. Actually, one such uh, observer is the novelist Ian McEwan. McEwan um, himself has no time for religion, but he's deeply sensitive to this loss of hope. And uh, in this book, Saturday, by uh, Ian McEwan, um, Matthew Arnold's poem, this poem, becomes the centrepiece of the whole story a young, hopeless thug named Baxter breaks into the home of a surgeon at a family gathering and is about to rape the grown-up daughter. He strips her naked in front of the whole family and um, discovering she's a poet, he demands that she read him one of her poems before he rapes her. Instead of one of her own poems, she actually recites this one, Dover Beach. And the thug is utterly transfixed. He abandons his plan and for a moment he only wants that poem. And McEwen comments, that the poem touched off in Baxter a yearning he could barely begin to define. Now in that book, no one finds faith. No one is actually changed. Baxter is only transfixed for a moment and then he's a thug again. But in a masterly way, McEwen consciously has opened a little window on our world and then closes again with a bang. He knows, you see. Our culture, the one we are living in, is a culture gasping, gasping for hope. For 150 years we have been exploring this land so various, so beautiful by new and finding out more and more and more that it hath really neither joy nor love nor light nor certitude nor peace nor help for pain. And author after author after author in today's world is exploring that. Our culture desperately needs to see what we have been seeing over the last few weeks. Desperately needs to see what we're going to explore this morning. That the Bible is a book of outrageous, glorious, extraordinary hope that people are wasting away for lack of. 
We began to see that hope last week. I hope you hope you remember. After that man had uh, and woman had sinned, God didn't abandon them. He pursued them. He called out to them. He clothed them. His judgments on them, remember, were all tinged with hope. With pain, you will give birth to children, says God. Through painful toil, you will eat, he says to the man. The one character, actually, who is not offered any hope in Genesis chapter 3 is the snake, who, remember, represents the devil himself. Now, Satan, that fallen angel, that meddler meddler in the world's affairs now, Satan, the devil, will be utterly defeated. Verse 15 reveals God's plan for the whole of the rest of history. I will put, Genesis 3 verse 15, I will put enmity, he says to the snake, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There will be an ongoing battle between the devil and human beings, says Genesis 3.15. And in some ways, that battle will be evenly matched. Although uh, the NIV says um, um, that the offspring will crush the snake's head and he will strike the heel. They're actually both the same word. They'll both be doing some crushing this offspring of the woman and the serpent. The difference lies in what is crushed. The legless serpent will only be able to do a bit of crushing of the heel and despite, uh, notwithstanding Achilles' unfortunate discovery about that, actually that will not destroy human beings. But the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The devil will be crushed, says Genesis 3.15. There is no ultimate hope for him. Evil is not just something we have to learn to live with. Evil is something that God is determined to eradicate. We are not called here to come to terms with evil. We are called to implacable hostility towards evil. The rest of the story of the Bible is searching for the serpent crusher because Satan, did you notice, will be crushed by an offspring of the woman. Who will it be? As generation after generation is born and grows up, there is the the unspoken question hanging in the air, will this generation produce that serpent crusher? And slowly, as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, it becomes clearer and clearer that nobody is going to manage it. No mere human being is. The greatest of them have feet of clay. The holiest of them have skeletons in the cupboard. Verse 
There's just no one good enough. No one escapes the devil's clutches. No one defeats him. No one crushes, crushes him. And then, to, as, the, as uh, the story of the Old Testament unfolds, the, the prophets start to see something. They start to see that it will be a descendant of Eve who defeats the devil. Yes, that was always promised. But somehow that descendant of Eve will have to be God as well. Because no pure descendant of Eve could ever do it. And the way is paved for the opening of the New Testament. Because the answer comes there very clearly. The devil will be defeated by Jesus. Jesus came centrally to do just this one thing, to defeat the devil. He anticipated it in his life when he drove out demons, proclaiming that Satan could not stand against him. But he achieved it finally by dying on the cross. Because the devil's great power lies in the fact that he can bring accusations against us before God. He knows God is perfectly just. God cannot ignore his diabolical whisperers. Look what he did. Look what she did, God. You must judge God. You must punish God. You must, you must, you know you must. But you see, God sent his son Jesus into the world. Born of a descendant of Eve. But son of God too to pay the penalty for the sins of the descendants of Eve. Only he could. Because only he was God the Son. And from that moment on, you see, whenever the devil whispers his accusations against us into God's ear, God now has a response. Yes, Satan, I must judge. Yes, I must punish. Yes, I must be just. But I'm not going to punish him or her. I took the punishment on myself, Satan. In Jesus Christ. And my justice, Satan means that I don't punish sin twice. Have you ever thought about that? Not a second time. They go free. Every one of them who has put their trust in Jesus Christ 
They go free. And by the way, Satan, that doesn't include you. You and your devilish hordes who are implacably opposed to me. Yeah, my justice will be exercised on you. And you will be destroyed. Your days are numbered, Satan. Get away from me. So Paul put it this way in Colossians 2 verse 15. Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The powers and authorities of Paul's way of speaking about those, the devil and his whores, those spiritual forces of evil. He disarmed them, made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. More than that, actually, Jesus demonstrated that he had begun that decisive feat, a defeat of evil by rising from the dead. Because the great seal of evil on each one of our lives is the fact that we die. As Epicurus said, as far as death is concerned, we live in a city without walls. We are defenceless. But Jesus defeated death. He rose from the dead as the firstborn from among the dead, as the first promise that all his people too will rise from the dead. As the, um, um, John Donne, the 17th century poet, wrote, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. This is the victory that Jesus won. Promised from the beginning a victory over Satan, a victory over death, the final mark of evil in our lives, a victory which can be ours. See, our world. Let's be honest, our world mocks this, our world scorns this, our world looks with deep cynicism on this. But then, actually, it goes away quietly and deeply mourns with Matthew Arnold and with Ian McEwan. Because a world without that confidence really does have no love, no joy, no comfort in pain. I quoted at the beginning Charles Darwin, didn't I? Didn't I? There is a grandeur in this view of life, he said. It was actually Ian McEwan in this book who pointed me to that quote. 
the surgeon um, meditates on the glory of Darwin's uh, work. Darwin, of course, proposed that small random genetic mutations over time have created all the variety of life that we see. The surgeon seeks to see it as a story of grandeur. But McEwen, in his book, reveals that the thug, Baxter, has a genetic mutation which will kill him horribly. There is no grandeur in his life. McEwen writes, This is his dim, fixed fate to have one tiny slip, an error of repetition in the codes of his being, in his genotype, and he must unravel. The book draws us inevitably, not to a picture of grandeur in human life, but to a picture of tragedy. So Christians here, hear this. If you are a Christian, God's called you to be a beacon of hope in a dark world. You are a person who has the most extraordinary privilege in this world because God somehow has opened your eyes, has warmed your heart, has helped you to see that there is hope beyond this purely material world. You are called to shine like a star in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Our world is wasting away, it is dying for hope. 150 years has seen a growing sense of that, that we, that as if we are only evolutionary machines, if evil is just the way the world is, if there is no great, if there is no greater hope than just to have happiness for a little while before death overtakes you, then life is pointless and worthless and empty and miserable. And you have the opportunity to show them otherwise. In my lifetime, uh, I think particularly in the last 20 years, I've seen a growing sense of dissatisfaction with this bleak picture of the world. I've seen a deeper sense of what Matthew Arnold saw more than a hundred years earlier, of the melancholy, long-withdrawing roar associated with the decline of faith. 
Actually, the philosopher Roger Scruton has suggested that the very vehemence of the new aggressive atheists stems from their sense of disappointment because there is no doubt that the 20th century was the century when um, uh, non-Christian understanding of the world ruled. And it did not make the world into a place of glory and peace but of growing societal unhappiness. And so suggests Scruton these, uh, the, the, the aggressive atheists in the Dawkins mould conclude, well, it must be the last remaining bits of religion in our society that is poisoning us, poisoning us and nothing less than total annihilation of them will satisfy. And they are so deeply, tragically wrong. Perhaps the world is starting to wake up to that. If you are a Christian here this morning, your life mission is to be part of that great glorious purpose. I don't know what God will call you to do. I simply don't. It may be to serve him faithfully and joyfully and sacrificially for many years in some insignificant role according to the world's standards. But if you are a person of hope, you will make a difference. It may be to speak on his behalf, speak of hope. You may have the privilege of rearing children. Rear them with a vision of hope. Never lose sight of the fact that though Satan still exercises his malevolence in this world, he is a defeated foe. You can be someone who when he trips you up and has a little victory, goes straight to God and says, please God forgive me and restores your relationship with God. You can be someone who when tragedy hits, through the tears and through the difficulty and through the pain, nevertheless says, this is not all there is. I am looking to, forward to a place of no mourning and no dying and, and, and no pain where I will see the face of God, where I will hear the voice of Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servants, though today I weep, I will not weep forever. Satan, you are defeated. I am an impregnable child of God. And if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, well, let me just tell you about the end of Ian McEwan's book. The surgeon... Well, he never quite understands what it was about that poem that transfixed the thug Baxter for a moment. For him, the poem is meaningless. 
And at the end of that long Saturday, he goes to sleep with his um, beloved wife. These are the last words of the book. Blindly, he kisses her nape. There's always this, is one of his remaining thoughts. And then, there's only this. And at last, faintly falling, this day's over. how you want to end your day on the earth or do you want to end your day eager to see what Paul describes when he says no eye has seen no ear has heard no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him It is open to you. It is open to you. If you will put your trust in the living God, in the message that he gives us from his word, if you will seek forgiveness with sincerity from Jesus Christ, and if you will set out by your life to follow Christ and defeat Satan, that hope is open to you. And to reapply Darwin's words. Isn't what we've been looking at over the last few weeks a story about which you can truly say there is a grandeur to this view of life?